Welcome to the Final Choice Podcast, a series created to help people get more informed about assisted dying and the End of Life Choice Act. I'm journalist and author of the Final Choice book, Carolise Trays. In my book, I interviewed more than 20 experts from across New Zealand and the globe, along with a number of those with disabilities and terminal illnesses. Through this podcast series, I'll take you on some of the journey in exploring if assisted dying is the answer to end-of-life suffering. The series includes excerpts of interviews from the Final Choice book, read by broadcaster Trudy Nelson. Welcome to episode one, Dipped in Polar Perspectives, with excerpts of Mary Panko and Renee Jobert. I find the End of Life Choice Act can draw some pretty ragey moments when there's contrasting views coming from some deep-seated beliefs and experiences. Starting out in the hunt for truth around this issue, I decided I needed to dunk myself in opposite ends of the spectrum by interviewing Euthanasia Free New Zealand and the End of Life Choice Society. These are two organisations that are strong campaigners on opposite sides that have been fighting for and against a law change like the one we now see for years. One says, the voice of the terminally ill say, I want to live every breath. The voice of the well say, my body, my choice. And the other, this isn't for people who are depressed, but for people who are at the end of their lives in uncontrollable pain. While the two I interviewed don't seem to see eye to eye, they do provide a basic understanding of both camps and introduce a variety of concepts and discussion around the issues. I did not know in the early days of my journey that the End of Life Choice Act and assisted dying was such a complex, far-reaching, widely impacting, significant decision we are being asked in this election referendum But that's the reality that we find ourselves in. So today, you will hear segments from Chapter 4 and 5 in The Final Choice. Chapter 4. Euthanasia Free NZ Spokeswoman, Renee Joubert. To be honest, I was expecting a hard-headed, fanatic-type person as I waded into the dogged anti-euthanasia group, Euthanasia Free NZ but I am constantly surprised at the personal journey people have been through to get to where they stand, and at their well-thought-out and well-researched concerns and opposition. One such person is Renée Joubert, Executive Officer of the organisation, who faced some of her big-life questions on death when her best friend committed suicide at age 22. Renée was 20 at the time, and the experience sent her into an existential crisis for several years where she questioned life and death. During that time, I started reading on euthanasia and saw it could be one of the next big ethical dilemmas society would face, she says. In 2013, she visited her sister in Europe. They planned to meet in Brussels, Belgium. I thought, what's in Brussels? Oh, euthanasia is legal there. Maybe I could talk to someone there about it. Renee met a doctor a chaplain and a representative from a bioethics organisation in Belgium. The encounter thrust her into a personal journey of conviction. She connected with Euthanasia Free NZ and soon after returning, signed up to do voluntary work for them. Renee is quick to reply to questions 
and it's very apparent she's fiercely opposed to this law. Her South African accent only adds to her vehemency. Part of what I heard in Belgium is how the culture changed as a result of their euthanasia law. That freaked me out. The Belgian oncologist I spoke to said when the law was first introduced, people tended to request euthanasia in the last days of life. But 10 years later, the growing trend was to request it at their first appointment with the doctor. She says while it was intended as a last resort, in practice, it just isn't. In the beginning, I thought things were clear-cut around eligibility and process. But the longer I looked, the more I realised the lines are blurry, Renee says. She refers to both international law and our own act. For example, if the goal is to alleviate suffering, does a person with a prognosis of six months to live suffer any more than a person with 10 years to live? It's inconsistent to allow euthanasia for one person suffering and not others who are suffering too. The eligibility is arbitrary. In 2017, Euthanasia Free NZ commissioned a poll asking people what they think assisted dying means. The majority thought it means either to refuse to be resuscitated, stop treatment, or turn off life support. None of those answers are correct. Those choices are already legal, Renee says. Funnily enough, the poll revealed the more strongly the person supported assisted dying, the more likely they were confused about what it means. I've had this experience so many times. I'd speak to an ardent supporter of assisted dying and found out a few minutes into the conversation they just don't want to be resuscitated if their heart stops. I ask where else she sees confusion in discussions. People like to say, it's my life, it's my choice. It's sold to us as a personal choice. But it involves other people, either by making a lethal dose accessible or by administering it. The law is about putting in place a state-administered, taxpayer-funded medical treatment. It is putting a system in place to intentionally end someone's life. It involves other people. Renee's main concerns about the EOLC Act are around its lack of safeguards, such as the lack of independent witnesses needed during the final administration and when the forms are signed. And there's no mandatory cooling-off period before the lethal dose is prescribed. The whole process, from first request to actual death, could happen in three days. This doesn't protect people from emotional decision-making. Surely the people asking for this know what they want and know what death is. Yet most other laws operating overseas have cooling-off periods included. In Oregon, there has to be an oral request, a written request, and a second oral request after a waiting period of 15 days before a prescription can be written. An exception is made if the person is expected to die of their illness within that time. In Hawaii, it's 20 days. Chapter 5. End of Life Choice Society President, Mary Panko. Mary is ever ready to talk about assisted dying. Her likeable and relatable manner makes it easy to talk about her experiences and motivation behind supporting the End of Life Choice Act. She is the president of the End of Life Choice Society, and while Mary is small in stature and slight in frame, you shouldn't underestimate her determination and feistiness on the issues. The retired Unitech education and technology lecturer spends many of her weekends at markets across Auckland, snagging passers-by to talk about assisted dying. Mary says she was reeled into the issue in a similar way as me, through a friend. 
Her friend was terminally ill and wanted access to assisted dying. My friend decided she wanted to have the ability to stop it all when things got too dreadful. She was desperately distraught that she had no control over her life. It laid a heavy burden on her shoulders. It wasn't legal here, so she ordered the drugs online from Mexico. The drugs got stopped at customs. She died six weeks later. Mary felt she should pay homage to her friend by finding out a bit more about assisted dying, so she attended a society meeting. I got embedded in it. The more I found out about it, the more reasonable it seemed to be for those people who wanted it. Two more friends died who wanted access to assisted dying. This isn't for people who are depressed, but for people who are at the end of their lives in uncontrollable pain. Mary says research shows there are around 6% of people who experience untreatable suffering in their last few days before death. And in the last 24 hours before death, it is much higher. What kind of suffering? Well, suffering in any or all forms, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. We aren't arguing that this should be introduced so people can line up for it, but it's so that the small percent who get approved and want it can use it. The more I read and the more people I spoke to about cases where people were dying badly, the more important it became. We do not call assisted dying murder, nor would we call it murder when a compassionate act helping a person to die is done at their request. The medical practitioner relieves irremediable suffering in a person nearing death. That is not murder. She says the current law of the land is you get treatment if you're lucky. The aim is to keep people alive or do no harm. If you're busy keeping people alive who don't want to be, it's harming them. There's a difference between someone begging to die less painfully and the amount of medication and treatment being incredibly invasive. We are just asking to have that stopped and pain alleviated and to die consciously. Mary wouldn't ever want her daughter or family to ever see her in that condition at the end of her life. I don't want them to remember me like that. It's horrendous. If you feel like that's horrendous, you should have the choice. Just like you can have the choice to live to the end without it. That's your choice. It's about giving people the right of decision. And you believe doctors who don't want to participate also have the right to object too? Yes, if a doctor disagrees with it, I wouldn't wish them to be involved. We are only involving doctors who are willing to take part. So if Mary has to ask for a doctor who would be willing, but the doctor doesn't know her at all, how would they be able to detect if any pressure or coercion is happening that may be influencing the decision? Well, honestly, the doctors may not know this, but under the Act, they have to inquire with the family or they could check with nursing staff. Nurses will be vital in detecting coercion. They are the ones who hear the families talking. They sit with the patients and treat them. That is the way I believe you could find out whether coercion is happening for sure. And if the nurse refuses to participate? Usually there is a group of nurses that see a person, but if they all refused, they would speak to someone who knows the patient. Doctors can subtly ask family members and listen. That's what doctors are trained to do. If assisted dying were legalised, would more people want access to it than those who would be allowed? Would the law need to change? I've thought a lot about the slippery slope, and if it would happen, I am only fighting for the current act, not some future application we cannot predict. 
People put a lot of weight in that argument, but really they are all fundamentally opposed to step one. That is their argument for stopping at the beginning. The act we have, the one we are voting for now, is about terminal illness. Choice. Dignity. Safeguards. Suffering. It's a complex mix. At times in this discussion, it can get easy to dismiss or attack people with a different perspective, but it helps to remember we all have things we can agree on in this discussion. Despite interviewing people with a wide array of views, I found it reassuring the number of things they all had in common. One is that everyone wants to ensure every person is treated with compassion and care, and that every person gets to live every day of their life with dignity. I also think it's important to note that we all have a common goal, and that is to relieve suffering. Every single person I spoke with has the same target. Mary Panko says the End of Life Choice Act is not for people who are depressed, but at the end of their lives in uncontrollable pain, and that 6% of people suffer at the end of life. While this may be the intention of the law, we have to assess if it will accomplish this goal. While assisted dying is not intended for people who are depressed, there is major concern around the eligibility criteria not including a screen for mental illness. If someone who meets a criteria, such as that six-month life expectancy, is suffering from depression, there is nothing in the law to protect them. In fact, one in six patients who opt for assisted dying in the state of Oregon are clinically depressed. And as for uncontrollable pain being a factor as mentioned, again, that is not a requirement in the act that we are considering. I assumed pain would be the main thing we are attempting to relieve, but again looking at overseas studies, for those choosing to use assisted dying in jurisdictions that have legalised this, pain is low on the list for reasons. It's important we realise in this discussion we are talking about something much more complex than physical pain, suffering. And that makes me wonder if assisted dying is the best answer Will it actually relieve the suffering we all hope to ease, or are there better ways of helping people in the midst of it? One other thing there is total agreement on, no matter who's in this discussion, is that most of us Kiwis just don't know what we're voting on in the upcoming referendum. We don't realise we're voting on a specific piece of law that has already gone through the parliamentary process and is sitting in wait we don't know the details about the Act, and even if we know that, we don't know how to assess if it's a good law. And most of us are unaware how big a deal it actually is. Renee says the main areas of confusion she sees in public discourse include not realising what we already have access to legally within the healthcare system, like being able to turn off life support or refuse treatment. She says people don't realise there's no mandatory cooling off period in this act. The whole process doesn't protect people from emotional decision making, despite other countries requiring it, and that this issue is not as simple as just offering someone choice. Renee makes it clear we have to realise this act involves other people, including doctors and the state. 
In the next episode, we explore a little about the societal significance of such a law change with a professor carrying nine doctorates, Margaret Somerville, and a former UK Whitehall senior civil servant, Robert Preston. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it and tell a friend about it? Purchase a copy of The Final Choice book from your local bookstore or online at thefinalchoice.nz, where an ebook version is also available.